Anna Singh is a professor of anthropology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and the author of many crucially important books that, taken together, show us how a multitude of different forms of life are bound together in a web of complex and fragile interdependence. Her books include Friction, an Ethnography of Global Connection, published in 2004, the acclaimed 2015 book The Mushroom at the End of the World, and a visionary anthology entitled Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet, Ghosts and Monsters of the Anthropocene. In this episode, we discuss her most recent project, Feral Atlas, the More Than Human Anthropocene, an online platform that's available to the public at feralatlas.org. The site is difficult to describe. It's intended as an interactive showcase for research into what Singh and her co-editors Jennifer Dagger, Alder Kellerman Saxena, and Feifei Zhou call feral species and feral dynamics. But it's also a site that uses multimedia techniques to tell stories of environmental injustice, radical diversity, and scientific surprise. Released through the digital repository at Stanford University Press, Feral Atlas contains a dizzying array of multidisciplinary engagements with the disturbing realities of the Anthropocene. And despite including more than 100 essays, analyses, and artworks by leading scientists and artists, it has not yet received the kind of attention that it deserves as a text that tries to map the enduring social and ecological effects of invasion, empire, capital, and acceleration. These are what they term the detonators. My sense is that this lack of attention might be symptomatic of the way that, as Singh puts it in our conversation, our modernist commitments have narrowed the kinds of knowledges that count as proper knowledge. We discuss the risks and pleasures that come with using a digital medium to experiment with modes of storytelling that might be capable of inspiring both the hope and the fear necessary to convince people how urgently we need to protect and nurture the last remaining spaces of interspecies flourishing as we attempt to dismantle, in Singh's words, the most harmful anthropogenic kinds of infrastructural effects. I wanted to jump right into it and um, ask how the project Feral Atlas, as as you term it, uh, stretches the genre of Atlas and what counts as a map. This is something I'm really interested in. Um, This idea that maps the way in which we understand maps is actually quite limited and that as you put it in the atlas a more faithful and generous mapping practice requires different spatial scales angles and modes of representation what was this what was this about this kind of you know rethinking reimagining of the map well maybe we could uh, start with the fact that it's a project about the anthropocene which you might think of as the world condition of human-caused environmental catastrophe. And uh, many people thinking about the Anthropocene have jumped directly to a planetary scale. But we argue, among other things, that the Anthropocene needs a spatial analysis. And that's how we're drawn to the atlas as a form. But rather than going straight, for example, to a GIS uh, representation of the Earth, and just plugging in little parts, which might then taken together form a globe. We argue that the kind of spatial analysis involves incompatible scales, uh, maps that are very diverse from each other and that fit together awkwardly. And it's in that 
overlap, that we do create a planetary condition, a world condition of human-caused environmental problems, but that we need to map it from many perspectives, many scales, many points of view. So we have maps that range from an Australian Aboriginal artist drawing of a Dreamtime-inspired depiction of his relation of his people to country, that that's one kind of map, but of course, completely incompatible with the modern maps that we imagine in terms of longitude and latitude. We have a map that shows the side of a salmon from the perspective of a sea louse, a parasite of salmon that has grown to terrible proportions with commercial salmon farming. But from the salmon louse, the sea louse's perspective, the side of the salmon is a terrain. And yet, that's not the same terrain as we might map from another kind of map. So it's in the coming together of these many kinds of empirical mappings of the world that we hope to create an atlas. And it, you know, it, it aligns with this idea in the text, um, if you can call it one sort of bounded text, of a, quote, transcultural Anthropocene history. Um, and there's this, there's this obvious goal of I think decolonizing scientific knowledge to get this more complete picture uh, by sort of multiplying the world-making uh, cosmologies that you include, um, and I, I noted too, like you've you've talked about the project on a few podcasts, and you've you've noted that you're you're radically kind of open um, to like the, the project really started from you know presenting this your research at conferences and being approached by people who wanted to contribute. Um, you know, have you always sort of been predisposed to this specific kind of multidisciplinary, um, you know, collaborative scholarship? What What do you feel is is important about trying to, as I said, kind of like uh, you know, multiply um, the the different kinds of cosmologies, angles, perspectives, and create this transcultural Anthropocene history? What What do we gain by doing that sort of work instead of, as we often do, like working in silos, these cellularized spaces of you know? Uh, scholarly output? Well, I think over the last few centuries, the Western Academy got divided into these silos, and it worked for certain kinds of knowledge. But now we're at a historical point where those silos just don't tell us the most important things we need to know if we're interested in environmental catastrophe. If, as uh, most uh, scientists believe, some of the most important environmental problems we have today have to do with the activities of humans. We need to know human histories as well as non-human histories to address these kinds of problems. The problem is we've all been taught a kind of blindness and ignorance across the walls of these divisions in the academy. And so humanists hardly know anything about non-humans. We lump them together. We don't pay enough attention to them to be able to see their dynamics, their their, uh, ability to be forces of history. And similarly, uh, natural scientists often don't know how to think about human histories, human activities, human cultures, and politics, and lump them together as if perhaps a term like the ecological term human disturbance, just covered everything without being able to separate it out 
uh, in the way that humanists and social scientists have uh, developed skills to do. So we're at a point where we really need these separate kinds of histories, uh, plus the fact that our modernist commitments have uh, narrowed the kinds of knowledge that count as proper knowledge. And so uh, disregarding to our detriment the knowledges of indigenous people, the knowledges of local residents, people who have empirical observations of what's going on in their part of the world, it, scientists and scholars may not have noticed them because it's not in their purview. So the kinds of uh, attention to these overlapping ways of gaining knowledge about the world seems to me essential to address the kinds of problems we have in our times. Just as you say, in the process, decolonizing scholarship. Mm -hmm. The text is really self-reflexive about the kinds of as you term it, the kind of hazards that come with building such bridges, that there's a certain kind of indeterminacy and you sort of avow that that's, that's okay. Um, there's a line where you, you, you know, you write collaboratively, building such bridges is full of hazards and remembering those hazards is useful to appreciate the task. Um, you know, you're, you're creating multidisciplinary research, these overlapping uh, um, ways of seeing history and engaging with the natural world in a digital medium which is itself this kind of like intersection, this hypertextual kind of intertext. Why emphasize the hazards specifically? What's important about, um, you know, underscoring the risks, as it were, of transdisciplinary collaboration, um, that, that it isn't easy? Why is, why is that sort of important? Well, I think all uh, of the kinds of knowledge that stands up is knowledge that recognizes the methods through which we know what we know, that we can only know what our specific methods show us. So all knowledge has its limitations, and it's accepting those limitations that helps us to figure out what else we need to know. So uh, we need to begin with those limitations, it seems to me, even in trusting the kinds of, of knowledge about the world that we want to gain. That's so interesting. And, and it speaks to the specific kind of relationship to language that Feral Atlas has. Like there's this really self-reflexive methodology around the use of words like Anthropocene. And, and I love this particular passage where you write that words entice and inspire. They can draw us closer to the worlds we seek to describe and understand. I wanted to kind of link this with the overarching as it were, communications strategy of Feral Atlas and its investment in a certain kind of tenuous blend of beauty and terror. Mm -hmm. This is something that comes up in your discussion with the uh, Conversations and Anthropology podcast. You talk about how uh, your book, The Mushroom at the End of the World, was received as this kind of transcendent book, and you concede that it is this kind of hopeful text uh, and that it's not all about, you know, death and doom. But then you you start to think through how we've perhaps become, as readers, as people who are engaging with the destructive nature of the Anthropocene, kind of addicted to a certain kind of hope. Um, and you fear that you're, you were sort of part of the problem in writing these beautiful lines like, the uncontrolled lives of mushrooms are a gift and a guide. Um, and, and so there's this clear shift in Feral Atlas toward telling stories where we're not winning. 
Um, and to just quote quickly a section uh, from the Atlas, you write, hope is tricky. Taken as a transcendent virtue or allowed to be synonymous with optimism, it can merely cover up problems, allowing us to ignore the bad news, yet fear and despair can also get in the way of effective action. Um, how did you arrive at the particular strategy of sort of searching for this balance between beauty and terror in communicating the urgency of, of anthropogenic destruction? Uh, thank you for that uh, guide into this discussion, which I think uh, is so central to Feral Atlas, the challenge that faces us now to tell these terrible stories, but to tell them in a way that draws us in to engagement with the world rather than allowing us to turn away from it, whether it's in fear or in uh, disgust. So it is one of the great challenges of our time to come up with modes of storytelling that bring us in to the details about the world. Sometimes I think of this as trying to create wonder in the midst of dread. Hmm. And as you say, this involves both kinds of enchantments, like the drawings that we use that uh, in which we want people to uh, enjoy and get pleasure out of these representations, even of creatures that are causing an incredible amount of damage. But it's through this engagement with those creatures and the details of how they work in particular places to create these feral dynamics that are often so problematic. It's through that engagement that we hope to create a new kind of public imagination uh, facing the environmental challenges of our time. Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm personally really invested in the use of the graphic, right? Illustrated maps. Um, I've been reading Lauren Redness's book, uh, Oak Flat, uh, which is this beautiful and terrible depiction of the struggle over Oak Flat uh, uh, among, you know, indigenous communities against corporate greed and specifically copper extraction. You know, the end of that book uh, um, depicts this kind of chain reaction, the global loss of sacred lands and the forceful displacement and destruction of indigenous communities. And I, I, I certainly, you know, uh, agree that there's something about that particular strategy, um, that specific mode of storytelling that can bring us in. Um, and I, I guess on that note, I wanted to um, ask about the specific use of the this kind of digital architecture, I think, as, as it's termed in the Atlas itself. Um, you know, there's, there's uh, this kind of stated investment in using uh, play and performance to draw the reader in. Um, and, and you talk about trying to, trying to induce this kind of wonder. Um, uh, it, it reminded me of the introduction to Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet, where you talk about relearning multiple forms of curiosity and these kind of shimmers that come out of multi-species knots. Um, you know, there's, there's this obvious um, use of, uh, uh, you know, a multi-pronged approach to communication with video and audio poems and, and what you term these unspectacular videos that offer a poetics through which users might recognize infrastructural work. And I thought that was kind of interesting, the use of unspectacular here, and even you know putting poems in quotation marks as though you're kind of trying to expand these generic definitions to some extent. Um, but you know, for me, like in terms of the digital architecture, 
you know, I, I concede I didn't engage with the Atlas in that kind of improvisational way that it's intended. Like for me, preparing for this interview meant looking at it a little more instrumentally, like literally creating a PDF out of the text of the Atlas and then trying to take notes. Um, so it was, it, just, it was a different uh, approach for me. But in the end, your goal is to create this kind of relational potentiality with the Atlas. Um, do you have any sort of data on how people are currently reading the Atlas? Um, you know, you, you admit that as designers of this site, you were battling for your users' attention. Um, do you have any sense of how this potential is being realized or not realized with the Atlas? There's a risk in using the digital architecture. I'll come in a moment to the pleasures and the possibilities of it. Mm -hmm. But the real risk is losing the audience of scholars, of people who are interested in policy and science and, and uh, learning more about the world. And the uh, big challenge, which I did not know until the last month, is that uh, book reviewing publications won't touch it, even though it has most of the characteristics of a book. Uh, it's full of words and explanations and attempts to explain something. But uh, the difficulty we've had getting reviews because uh, reviewing publications aren't touching it uh, has been a huge dilemma because that's how uh, projects of creating intellectual kinds of interventions come into our world. Mm. So this is the big risk that I truly didn't know about as I went into this until uh, confronting it now. And I think there are some kinds of uh, users who will see it as a form of children's play uh, which is not bad if they could also see the serious scholarly investments in this, the serious uh, action-oriented as well as intellectually-oriented interventions that we're trying to make with the Atlas. So that's the danger side. The pleasure side, it was the goal of bringing scholars not only into new kinds of conversations that they would not have been involved in, but also conversations with students, with uh, people who like video games with people who are just interested in the internet in, again, ways that might not have been possible. That even in the great divide between humanists and natural scientists, that all of the articles on interdisciplinarity tend to produce merely very bland forms of collaboration. But we're trying for something a bit more radical by saying, look at the non-designed effects of these kinds of infrastructures on the world where you're going to need those who understand human histories and those who understand non-human histories working together to understand it. So there's a serious conversation to be had. At the same time, uh, we also wanted to involve the kinds of artists, uh, students, uh, people who like to play to see concepts perhaps come to life through the digital architecture. I mean, one of the things that I love in here that's just slipped in with so many things that it would take a real exploration to find, but we have an index at the end that shows you some of our categories, but uh, seeping behind the categories or a set of categories that aren't in the Atlas at all. 
in that there's an argument, an argument that categories are very important for our thinking, but they're not themselves uh, inscribed in a way that uh, other kinds of ways of doing categorizations can't come in. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to make that point about how categories work in social analysis through the digital architecture without having an essay about that point particularly at all. So the digital architecture allows us many ways to show how these feral dynamics come to life. And that's what we're hoping on. Uh, But again, within the perils of the still very strong commitment to printed books on pieces of paper as those things that matter in setting intellectual agendas. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, that this this calculated risk um, is real, right? That uh, there are consequences to choosing this particular medium. Um, and and yeah, that, you know, the impact, the intended impact will be uh, maybe not lost, but sort of displaced there is this moment in in Feral Atlas where you write that um, the the choice of the digital architecture and artful exploration is is a choice to uh, avoid what you term an authoritative uh, structure for keeping categories in their place. Um, so it's an experiment in form and clearly a kind of risky experiment. Um, so, but I, I think at the same time the project is is successful in terms of you know, as you put it, presenting materials with such absorbing detail, passion, and care that readers might become curious to know more rather than turning away. Um, and I wanted to compare that to the um, Anthropocene documentary, uh, which uses Edward Bertinsky's uh, photography in order to depict um, the sheer scale of the Anthropocene. And I think, you know, this this could be the kind of reference point um, of this kind of, you know, particular moment in Feral Atlas where you talk about conceptual treatments of infrastructure um, that bring in human designers and users precisely to work against this sense of context-free effectiveness, right? You talk about, um, uh, you know, invoking the very feelings of removal and alienation aimed for by the infrastructural work itself. And to me, this connected like directly to Bertinsky which is his work is often critiqued for encouraging this kind of distance, this God's eye view um, of infrastructure. There, there is a, a kind of deliberate effort to work against that sublime aesthetic pleasure almost in, in witnessing the sheer scale. Um, and instead, I think a, a different kind of inducement, an inducement to, to mourn the death on the ground of, of the kind of ghostly traces of, of life that was there. Um, do, do you do you feel as though your project is is specifically invested in this kind of you know structure of feeling, like giving people this kind of language of like empathizing with their environment? And do you take that that point about Bertinsky's work that it is on some level sort of this antiseptic, almost um, you know distanced uh, depiction of the Anthropocene? I, I've heard a lot of discussion about just the point you're making in terms of Bertinsky. Uh, and the kind of aesthetics uh, he uh, promotes. I I myself find some of those photographs really compelling because even though they offer only a single scale, they allow you to kind of yourself hone in to tiny details 
and to think about under what circumstances might this pattern have been created. And to that extent, perhaps Feral Atlas is doing that work that's not explicit in a Brzezinski. Brzezinski just gives you a scene and then lets you do what you want with it. But while we try and move across scales constantly to tell you how these feral dynamics are coming into being. And I think that idea of creating new structures of feeling in which we might identify with, uh, mourn, and perhaps also uh, work towards setting up alternatives, refuges, uh, possibilities, uh, that all at the same time uh, becomes, well, certainly one of the goals of Feral Atlas is to work. I mean, it's as if a Brzezinski uh, scene setting then comes to life with all the activity that would have to have gone into making it and all the little changes that are caused that you can't see in that kind of distanced, sublime view. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, to me, this is linked with uh, this this one concept that I was sort of struggling with in reading the Atlas, um, the notion of uncontainable, and the specific way that you're using uncontainability and trying to attune us to the uncontainable nature of, first of all, Homo sapiens themselves, um, but these specific feral ecologies. Um, I wondered if you could speak to this at all. I mean, in particular, there's this notion that the the atlas is using the term uncontainable specifically to mark quote the alarm shock and even panic people feel in the face of feral ecologies and you tell the reader that you're only marking this uncontainability really when it shocks and surprises um what's significant about this sensation of shock and surprise and why do you write for example that you know shock and surprise come from expectations of imperial industrial and industrial control? Is there a representational strategy uh, that does work to kind of like convey that, that feeling that almost like palpable feeling of uncontainability rather than like pushing it away, trying to jettison it? I think up through the present, so many of us have been educated and come to consciousness in a, set of expectations in which the designers of particular projects expect their projects to come through exactly as they designed them, that is, with no non-designed effects, that we continually imagine that we can fix the world by having a plan that will have no extra effects. And that means that when we put up these big world-changing, terrain-changing projects, we pay far too little um, attention to the kinds of non-design effects. And we act as if we're continually shocked and that then we have to clean up after all these projects that we put into place. One of the uh, contributors to Feral Atlas, uh, sociologist Scott Frickle, pointed out in a recent talk that the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States does not regulate industrial waste. All it does is clean up after industrial waste has been produced. And even then, it can only see industrial waste in very limited uh, kinds of parameters. So as long as we're not paying attention 
to the kinds of destructive forces of the industrial projects that we're allowing to go forward, we continually act as if we're surprised that burning fossil fuel creates excess carbon dioxide that's warming up the world or whatever the effects of the projects we're involved in. Hopefully, by uh, the kind of of imagination that we're hoping Feral Atlas could put forward might make us a little bit more aware that we do these kinds of projects and they're going to have feral effects. And they're going to be uncontrollable in some way or another. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I think that's such a great point that we perpetually act as if we're, we're shocked, surprised, um, and it becomes less and less sort of tenable. Um, you, you have this um, co-authored article that I think came out quite recently uh, called the, the Snarled Lines of Justice, where you talk about that sort of performance almost of shock and surprise. Uh, uh, as you put it, there can be no more trust in hiding places that especially in the context of the coronavirus pandemic, interdependency is in full view. All of these sorts of um, narratives around, um, you know, the the sequestering of the wealthy f- away from um, these these impacts, like that, still of course is is the case. You know, this this notion, uh, you know, that An- Andreas Malm talks about of you know, sp- you know, California, for example, which is ecologically vulnerable, still being economically buffered as a site of capitalist accumulation, like that all still obtains. But I think what Feral Atlas shows is that the kind of sheer indifference model of what Kara Daggett calls like petromasculinity or Trumpism, that that is slowly kind of eroding. Do you think that that's, that's the case, that there's something, there's something about the current moment that makes it difficult to perform shock or perform this like incapacity to sort of grieve the destruction of the planet, the, the, the planet being literally on fire. You know, I'm thinking in particular about this recent um, essay that Judith Butler published in The Guardian about how, how Trump refuses to concede because of an incapacity to um, accept uh, the loss of a certain kind of patriarchal capitalist privilege or dominance. Um, she writes, I will destroy the world that reflects back to me that I have lost, or I will leave that world through recourse to fantasy. Do you think that fantasy, that kind of modernist fantasy is eroding in the context of these kind of shocking um, disasters? Wow, there's a lot to address there. Uh, but let's let's start with the, the Trump phenomena in a uh, relatively recent book, uh, Bruno Latour's book, Down to Earth. He wants us to look at Trumpism, not as an exception to business as usual, but a new kind of business as usual, based on climate denial, in which uh, elites uh, who argue for the kind of modernization and development stories that have been told for the last 150 years, that those stories are now self-consciously what Latour calls out of this world, that is, completely materially incompatible with what everybody knows is the resource and ecological situation of this earth. And that Latour argues that it's precisely uh, in recognizing that elites have moved from a kind of modernization narrative that seemed believable 
to one that seems completely unbelievable that it's in that context that we might have a, a position that he calls terrestrial that uh, is grounded uh, in the possibilities of living together on Earth. So I found that uh, very uh, provocative to think with, the idea that rather than seeing Trump as an exception, that he could be a guide to uh, some of the ways that industrial elites are now positioning themselves. Mm -hmm. So that was one tiny piece. You're going to have to steer me back into some of the other pieces of that long uh, question. Sure. Um, yeah. And I mean, we, I could take up the sort of notion of, um, you know, the industrial elites being sort of out of this world. I mean, it's notable, for example, that Jeff Bezos has said that he'd like to invest his quote unquote winnings from Amazon in, you know, space travel. And, and Elon Musk, similarly, now, I guess, the richest man in the world um, through the kind of market valuation of Tesla has said that he he wants to sort of terraform Mars. So there is like literally um, a kind of science fictional fate for these for the ultra rich for the plutocrats. Yeah, I found that such an interesting development because in a way that the outer space fantasy that they've embraced is what I think of as a 1950s futurism. That is from a moment of human conquest in which the idea of human exceptionalism, that is that humans could overcome all obstacles all by themselves to be the pinnacle of mastery, Mm. uh, which at that point was about flying to the moon and Mars, that that has come back as an elite fantasy is so surprising in this moment Mm -hmm. when uh, pretty much all natural scientists across the natural sciences agree that humans are perfectly incapable of living by ourselves, that the interspecies worlds that we're a part of are intrinsic to what it means to be human, that uh, all these people who want to go to Mars and the moon have not thought very carefully about bacteria and fungi, about plants and animals, about pathogens and pests, that all of the concomitants to human life on Earth that we're dealing with now are dismissed entirely in a way that I can only think of as a mid-20th century fantasy amped up for a time that it seems utterly unbelievable. This is the thing. Like uh, Sylvia Federici in her new book, Beyond the Periphery of the Skin, writes about this, this kind of fantasy as well. Um, she has an uh, an essay with George Kafensis called Mormons in Space Revisited that makes the same point that we're imagining a world without connection in this in this outer space kind of f- futurist, uh, um, you know, mode. Um, and I think it, it does seem somehow to make sense in the context of uh, a sh- sheer indifference to the planet. Um, you write in Feral Atlas that Anyone who cares about life on Earth Earth needs to pay attention to the radical shifts to which all of us are subject. Um, and, and so that, to me, is contrasted with a certain kind of, as you put it in your introduction to Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet, um, a kind of ruthless ambition, a willingness to participate in great projects of destruction while ignoring extinction as collateral damage. I mean, that kind of dream of, of leaving the planet um, comes from, I think, a certain kind of, you know, uh, uh, seduction 
um, the, this kind of seduction to, um, you know, a, a convenient sort of alternative reality almost, right? Where we can, where we have a planet B, where we literally have a planet B. Um, it's, it's striking though. Um, but ca- characteristic of what Karen Ho in The Feral Atlas writes about, this kind of new structure of feeling that's characterized by a sense of limitlessness among the ruling class. I think uh, yeah, one of the ways uh, to hold on to this out-of-this-world fantasy is to think of it as that fantasy that assumes the possibility of mining the whole earth for all of its uh, resources, labor, and uh, ecosystem services in order to support a small elite. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the, the thing about the, the Karen Ho's essay and, and also uh, Amitav Ghosh's essay, they both give us this language for um, understanding the deep seated yet, yet historical nature um, of sort of neoliberal capitalist values. Um, and, you know, Ghosh writes, for example, concealment is vital to the effective use of power in this context that we're um, sort of, you know, constantly focusing our attention away from the structural factors that uh, produce this attitude toward the earth um, that sees it purely as a resource to generate profit. Um, I, I noted, too, uh, that there's this moment in your exchange with uh, Bruno Latour, Isabel Stengers uh, and the other members of this roundtable about this kind of um, system of, of capitalism, but the presence within that system of, as you term it, non-capitalist value systems. Um, do you take some degree of sort of hope as an anthropologist from the presence of these alternative possibilities? I know hope is, is, is a tricky thing, uh, but you, you talk about in that exchange the fact that um, there, there, there is more than just this modern mode of existence, right? As you put it, um, uh, you know, certain kinds of powerful institutions want us to take it for granted, but that is not all that is going on. Is this about sort of trying to make a sort of leap of faith and and see these glimpses of alternative worlds that, as you put it in Feral Atlas, in live in even the most degraded situations? To me, going forward, one thing that is incredibly important is to hold on to some multi-species refuges, places where there's still uh, kinds of interactions between uh, many kinds of living things that have been developed over the long durée of evolutionary time, that we need those spaces. And some of them, you know, might be small protected areas, but others of them might be alternatives within, uh, but not fully within uh, industrial spaces. That seems to me that this is not necessarily about a single heroic change of the planet into a new system, but a matter of creating, of of nurturing life within those shadows and cracks where we've still got it going. We need those. And it's up to us to keep nurturing them because uh, those are the spaces of possibility for both humans and non-humans. Hmm. Um, and, and that really stands in contrast to a certain kind of technological um, fantasy that, you know, admittedly, you know, uh, uh, even people like Andreas Malm, whose work I appreciate, and, and Holly Jean Buck, who I just recently interviewed for this podcast, uh, they talk about the, the urgency of seeking these kinds of technological uh, solutions that are not merely about sort of degrowth or 
recognizing interspecies entanglements, but rather, um, you know, recognizing that the time is up and that, w- that we now need to pursue even projects of geoengineering. Um, you, you talk in Feral Atlas about a certain kind of boosterism. It's a term that comes up frequently. And it's clearly a, a thing that you're sort of, you're, you see as this kind of, you know, neoliberal entrepreneurial thing that, that kind of just, you know, uh, endlessly defers the really difficult work of, of system change. Um, and I wondered if you could speak to your own kind of um, relationship to the concept of geoengineering. Is there a point at which you feel that, you know, planetary scale catastrophe will demand some form of technological deus ex machina kind of like solution in the form of geoengineering? Or do you really think it's still bound up with these kind of modernist dreams of mastery? I, you know, part of the point of Feral Atlas is the non-design effects of infrastructures, which we just defined as uh, kinds of projects for changing the land, the water, and the atmosphere. That throughout modern history, those kinds of projects have been promoted as if they'll have the effects that their architects, designers, and boosters claim. You know, they used to make an office building and it'll have offices in it. You'll make a train line and train cars will go on it. That this is how we've learned to understand these infrastructure building projects. But Feral Atlas shows that all of those projects together create the Anthropocene through their non-designed effects. That mm-hmm. And Often, the bigger the infrastructural scale, the more their non-designed effects. So I believe that these um, geoengineering projects are, alas, amazing examples of just the modernist hubris that assumes that the uh, promoters, boosters, and designers of an infrastructural project, through the force of their dreaming, will limit the effects of the project they come up with to those that they most dream on, Mm. that they're not paying attention to feral effects, that uh, if there's one big message of feral atlas, it's that you want to build these things, you've got to start paying a whole lot more attention to the kinds of non-design effects that are part of these giant changes. And in some ways, the bigger the projects you change, the more feral effects you're going to get. So I am quite nervous about these uh, attempts, which are often very much tied to uh, green capitalism dreams that you could still put things in the hands of a few elites who, of course, are very invested in a certain set of dreams and ignore the consequences. Hmm. I think instead, there are so many kinds of solutions that have not yet been attempted uh, that work at multiple scales and are often about dismantling the most harmful anthropogenic kinds of infrastructural effects. For example, in Feral Atlas, there's tons of uh, field reports that show you, for example, the detrimental effects of the industrial nursery trade that sends live soils and ornamental plants around the world. Now, since the late 1990s, very concentrated in a few places to take advantage of lower labor costs and lack of environmental regulations. These nursery trade are sending plant diseases all around the world. We do not need to send live soils around the world. Every place has soils. This is just a matter 
of a few industrial elites that are benefiting from the uh, shipping of soils around the world. This is an example of something that very few people would be detrimentally affected if we just stopped the form of the industrial nursery trade that we have today. This is the kind of work that paying attention to feral effects could make big changes without instead arguing that a few corporations could be put in charge of the world and somehow magically fix everything. And again, it, it speaks to Gosha's point that concealment is, a vi- is vital to the effective use of power, which is why I really hope that, um, you know, Feral Atlas becomes this kind of viral, um, you know, uh, phenomenon in some sense. Be- I mean, given the fact that this unbelievable wealth of content, 330,000 words plus, uh, you know, is, is freely available and is open to this kind of, you know, engagement and play and, and it, it's so eminently uh, a brilliant, you know, educational resource. Um, I really think it can uh, provoke a profound reorientation, and I think we could connect this a little bit to geoengineering. Like, there, there is a kind of techno utopian, um, you know, privileging of geoengineering. For example, um, you know, that techno utopian hope in, in in our kind of capacity to triumph over adversity through just sheer kind of like technological know how. Um, manifests itself in the gas station down the street for me. The gas station down the street has this sign that tells me I can fill up my tank and still fight climate change. They're advertising, you know, a promotion outside of its doors that says like by filling up there and like swiping my air miles card, I can contribute to carbon reducing projects of reforestation. That is insidious. It's simply, um, you know, inducing this kind of, uh, um, this sense of hope at the very site of, of this kind of, you know, consumerist kind of doubling down, reinvesting in uh, a fossil fuel infrastructure. What's interesting about things like geoengineering is that it does have this um, seemingly globally transformative potential. Um, and I think you're right to point out that the potential feral effects feel sort of doomed from the start. We need to be thinking uh, more in terms of how we can educate ourselves in other forms of kind of regeneration. Um, and, and I think, you know, here I, I wanted to address this kind of recurrent uh, uh, notion in Feral Atlas of, of care and wonder and the practical desire to know the means of survival that are actually available to us. This is, this is articulated so eloquently um, in terms of the way that the Atlas talks about a kind of post-Anthropocene ontology or cosmology that, as you put it in the Atlas, preserves some of the Holocene entanglements that we need to survive. Um, and so I wondered uh, if you could like historicize it to, to some extent, these Holocene entanglements that we need to survive. Sure. But first, uh, from your previous discussion, <laughs> I'm now considering introducing the term geo unengineering. Mm-hmm. I don't know how far it'll take us, but at least it's worth thinking about. What about a global project of removing some of the most harmful uh, kinds of imperial and industrial infrastructures. Yeah. But let's talk about Holocene entanglements. I think uh, many of the living things on Earth, well, pretty much all of the living things on Earth, require other species to become who they are and to be who they are, that we've seen uh, kind of vivid examples, for example, of 
insects that can't uh, reproduce without some other insect taking care of their young, or uh, the bobtailed squid that needs a particular bacteria to give it its protection against predators, that we've seen some vivid examples, but it's pretty much a general uh, condition in which, uh, as uh, biologist Scott Gilbert says, we are all lichens now. We are all interspecies kinds of beings that can't do what we need to do without other species. And those entanglements uh, have developed over evolutionary time, which can be very short, but in many cases is quite long. And so you get rid of whole species and you end up messing with these interspecies evolutionary entanglements. And it turns out that whole cascades of species will die in the process. I read about uh, the the uh, disease that's cured killing European ashes and some huge number of insects, mosses, fungi uh, live on European ash trees. So the death of European ashes is not just about one species of tree, but about a whole cascade of other species that live together with that tree. And that we don't know the ecological effects uh, of uh, losing all these species. One of the feral atlas entries talks about this fungus that's killing uh, so many frogs and now salamanders also. It's part of the industrial pet trade uh, spreading around the world. Uh, we are going to live in a world with a whole lot less frogs in it. Mm-hmm. And we hardly know what the ecological consequences of that will be in terms of stream eco- ecologies. Uh, nobody has bothered to ask that question. So we rid ourselves of these multi-species worlds to a great deal of dangerous prospects of what it'll mean to continue life on Earth. I, I mean, humans seem in all over the world to seem to be perfectly fine with giving up the drinking water around them because it's been so contaminated by industrial processes that we can't drink it anymore. At some point, we're just going to run out of drinkable water. And maybe we should be paying attention to what it takes to keep drinkable water in our world. Uh, to imagine that, right? The feral effect of literally losing this this thing that we, we take for granted, this this basic element of life um we're we're on the precipice of that kind of moment and and so this is why you kind of emphasize um shock and surprise i certainly think in the covid-19 moment people were shocked at this kind of emergence of an infection that you know the world health organization had already warned the global public was coming the reason i think feral atlas has such power is that you're dedicating yourself to this practice of direct engagement rather than this kind of aloof, uprooted abstraction. For example, you talk in not just sort of, you know, stark terms about the inherently negative nature of feral effects. You also talk about the potential for positive feral ecologies, unanticipated forms of sort of survival living on the perseverance of non-human life and damaged landscapes. I know that, you know, um, uh, Elizabeth Colbert's uh, The Sixth Extinction talks about uh, the disappearance of frogs at length, but also notes 
the fact that what might come after man, she says in that book, is a highly evolved rat species. Because rats, as you point out in Feral Atlas, actually thrive in the context of human disruption. These are the kinds of things that, while seemingly unimaginable, um, are now uh, uh, things that we have to seemingly confront as difficult as it might be. And so I think you're right to point out that the, the, the primary challenge of our time is using modes of storytelling that bring us in, that inspire a sense of wonder in the midst of dread. Is, is this sort of your, your goal in some sense is to, you know, to inspire, as you put it in the beginning of Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet, this kind of almost spooky quality of engaging with haunted landscapes? I think that's what we have is kind of uh, uh, haunted landscapes. And I think it's really important that we learn to engage with them and to figure out where we are engaging with possibility and where we're engaging with some really dangerous things that we might want to limit as much as possible. And it's not always easy to tell the difference, as you're saying in some of one part of your question. I'm one of the mm-hmm. uh, field reports in Feral Atlas by anthropologist Jacob Doherty talks about these ugly marabou storks in the garbage dumps in uh, Uganda and how the municipal authorities really hate them because they're you know pooping all over and they're so ugly but actually the people who are picking through the garbage to try and recycle metals and other recyclable materials love the birds because they're cleaning off the organic garbage and leaving the hard materials there for people to pick through so it's a it's a lovely example to me of where we don't always do a good job just by what we're disgusted by or what looks ugly to us in seeing uh, dangerous versus beneficial kinds of forms of life. We need to be careful and also to see places that are not contaminated, for example, as well as places that are contaminated. Yeah, um, it it makes me think uh, to some extent about Katie Overstreet's uh, essay in the Atlas on um, cats and and the way in which you know cats are such a fetishized element of the digital age. And you know Overstreet's article provides us with a much sort of darker picture of cats and their their impact. Um, you know, The New Yorker recently uh, published a video on how cats are fundamentally these super predators. We're often misled by the the anthropocentric projection onto landscapes that we're kind of constantly invested in. And I think cats are an interesting example of that. I wanted to um, wanted to sort of, the last question I, I had really was about the question of haunted landscapes in particular. Feral Atlas um, and your work in general really encourages and inspires this, this uh, re-engagement with uh, the local. And here in Nova Scotia, we, we have seen the haunted legacy of colonization in the form of a, a struggle over uh, Mi'kmaq lobster fisheries. There has been, in fact, uh, this resurgence of a kind of uh, white terrorist violence in the face of Mi'kmaq fisher folk trying to, you know, eke out a moderate livelihood in the form of fishing lobsters out of season. A fishery was burned down uh, as a result of uh, Mi'kmaq, you know, deciding 
to um, assert their rights and, and fish out of season. And what was interesting in this context is that backlash against you know this moderate livelihood lobster fishing uh, among the Mi'kmaq people was was justified this this racist violence by citing the impact on lobsters. This, I think, you know, is is, an, is a moment where the the supposedly feral effects of fishing out of season was invoked as a means of actually justifying a certain kind of colonial violence. What's what's interesting to me is that in the reporting on this issue, there was there was a clear kind of like invisibilization of the fact that there are two obvious scales here. There is the scale of the white commercial crews that dominate the lobster trade, and then the incredibly small percentage of lobsters that were being you know, fished by uh, the Mi'kmaq indigenous folks here. And to me, this connected clearly with uh, the way in which the Feral Atlas Project looks at bringing indigenous epistemologies and practices to the fore in this meaningful ethical way. Could you speak to the specific investment in um, making visible these sites in which, um, you know, as you put it, the victims of violence are already dead. If we accept this this parceling out, this delineation of resources, you know, on the one hand for the commercial monopolies, and then on the other hand for these small forms of indigenous subsistence, is it about trying to get a more complete picture by showing the intersection of these these scales and how violent that intersection can be? I don't know anything about the Nova Scotia situation, but it seems to me the things you've addressed are just right, having to do with the difference between industrial fishing on the one hand and artisanal fishing on the other, which makes a huge difference that where I have done some research in Indonesia, uh, the kinds of fisheries that are are artisanally done Mm -hmm. produce rather sustainable uh, growth among the organisms, while those that are directed by multinational uh, kinds of interests uh, can wipe out resources rather quickly. So that issue of the, the scale and mode of exploitation seems to me incredibly important. Mm-hmm as well as the kinds of kinship between indigenous people and the kinds of marine organisms that they have lived with, uh, where uh, maybe you saw in the Atlas the uh, report on salmon in the uh, British Columbia, where the uh, indigenous fishermen who are kin in ways with Pacific salmon are now having to compete against companies, uh, big commercial companies who want to grow a different kind of salmon and who are bringing a lot of pests and pathogens into the water. Uh, that this seems to me much too common a situation where uh, distant investors don't have enough commitment to the local ecologies to really be caring about them. Yeah, and and this is why you know uh, it's important to blend these different kind of modes. You know, the recognition of shock and surprise. I mean, certainly the the images on the news of uh, this this Mi'kmaq lobster fishery in flames was a shocking uh, moment. But then it was kind of re-narrated in ways that made it somehow uh, coherent to the white majority. Um, you know, the, but I think um, there is 
there is enormous wealth of information, but also um, an inspiring kind of engagement with these multiple cosmologies and vocabularies in Feral Atlas. There, you know, the the fundamental point does seem to be, um, you know, recognizing uh, the intersection of multiple histories and and sort of systems, as it were, of knowledge and world making. And then there's also this, like, there's this, you know, beautiful moment in the Atlas where you write, things did not have to work out that way. They still might change rather than a singular, singular logic of destruction or hope with a predetermined future. Um, and I appreciate all the work that you do. Uh, and especially, you know, making the time to talk to me, this has been really exciting. Well, let me thank you for what you've just done. It fulfilled a dream of mine that it was breaking my heart to realize that Feral Atlas might not get reviewed because it's a digital project. But in your questions, you actually did a really wonderful kind of, uh, the kind of thing that a reviewer does, that is get inside the details and try and figure out how they matter or how they might speak to things that other uh, scholars and public uh, spokespeople are saying. That it's just that that I was hoping Feral Atlas would stimulate is a set of conversations about these issues and how they matter. So thank you very much for engaging with that. Oh, it, it's certainly been my pleasure. And I'm going to keep dwelling with the project and going back to it. There's so much to explore. <laughs>